Revelation chapter 2. Go ahead and turn over there. Revelation chapter 2. We've been dealing with this for a few weeks now and looked at several different churches. We've looked at Ephesus. We've looked at Corinth. We've looked at um, Laodicea. Is that all of them? Jerusalem. We looked at Jerusalem, right? So today, building a strong church. So today, I want to talk to you about the church at Smyrna. And you might not know a whole lot about that church, but, but Smyrna, to me, is one of the most interesting churches in the Bible. Um, you don't have, there's, there's nothing negative recorded about the church at Smyrna. Tell me somebody else that there's nothing, in, that, that in the Bible, there's nothing negative about them, nothing. Well, Enoch, yeah, there's only one verse about him, period, but Joseph, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing negative about Joseph. I mean, there's a couple of things that you can maybe say, yeah, maybe he could have done that differently, but there's nothing that it says that he did that was wrong. Who else? Daniel, right? Jesus, too, yeah, there's a good one, yeah. That's the, I can't believe all the kids didn't raise their hand and say Jesus, you know, but, but that's right, there's nothing, so... But Smyrna is just like that. Um, there is nothing. We don't have a lot about the church at Smyrna. Um, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it had weaknesses. Uh, it was human, and everything human is faulty to some degree. But none of them are given to us in the Bible, and none of them are recorded about this church. So for that reason, we're not going to talk about any of the weaknesses of Smyrna. Uh, every church that we've looked at so far has had strengths and weaknesses. We looked at the strengths one week and the weaknesses the next week. There are no weaknesses to talk about about the church at Smyrna, um, but Smyrna was a, a pretty substantial city um, along the Aegean Sea in Turkey, and we talked about Ephesus last week, week before that. Uh, Smyrna was one of these cities that actually rivaled Ephesus. Um, it, was a, it was a great city. It was a big city. Uh, do you remember how many people we said lived in Ephesus? You remember? Over 500,000 people lived in Ephesus, and Smyrna was a city about that size. There was a lot of people that lived in the city of Smyrna. And they were, they were both on the seacoast, and so they were both seaports and everything else. They were, very, the, they were very much in competition with each other until uh, the, uh, the silt built up in the river and kind of blocked off the, the entrance to Ephesus, and it kind of went away as, as a great seaport. But uh, Smyrna... Um, was uh, attacked, it was ravaged in the Middle Ages, but it still exists today. Now, it's not called Smyrna today. It's called uh, Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R, but it's still in Turkey, and it's still the same city that it, that it was when it was considered Smyrna. But um, in, in fact, it's a huge city today. It's bigger than the city of Chicago. I mean, you think about how big the city of Chicago is. That's a large, large city. Uh, so, and to this day, probably the most famous person to ever come out of there was Homer. Homer wrote the, the, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, probably, probably the most famous literature that was ever written, if you, if you consider uh, how long it stood the test of time. Um, but he wrote that from a cave in Smyrna about 800 years before the time of Christ. Uh, anyway... Coming to the religion of that day in the first century, it was, it was a typical pagan city. It had all the deities, the gods, and everything else, and, and um, they had some extracurricular worship of Homer thrown in on the side. You know, of course, Jackson, Jackson, Jackson worships Homers, too. Uh, he's baseball, you know. Javi Baez and these guys hitting home runs out of there, and that's all he dreams about. But um, anyway, they had, a, they had a cult there that was the Dionysian cult, and... Um, 
uh, they, they, a lot of that is, is still even, you know, the, the, some of the gods that come from that, what, he's still laughing at that, huh? <laughs> some of the gods that come out of that time period and things um, are, are root words of some of the partying and things like that that we get today, um, but this god, um, Bacchus, B-A-C-C-H-U-S, uh, it was a God that was, you know, is, it was just the God of alcohol and, and sex and all of these other kind of things. And, and um, so you can kind of see some of the problems that were going on in Smyrna. Smyrna was a rough place to live. Uh, it was not like, oh, this is a great, you know, everybody wants to be Christians in Smyrna. So this church was great and they didn't have any problems. Um, uh, but this God was so embraced, Bacchus, this God was so embraced in Smyrna. Uh, he was supposedly resurrected from the dead. That was one of the things that they claimed about this God. But um, John, in this very little section that's written about Smyrna, actually talked about that um, to emphasize Christ's resurrection, uh, to show that Christ had more power than these gods that they talked about in Smyrna and everything else. In fact, let's read the, let's read the whole little section there that's given to us about Smyrna. It picks it up in, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 8. And under the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, and they are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall, uh, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. So, in these few verses, I see two main strengths. There's, there's a few that kind of branch off of those that we're going to talk about, but two main strengths of the church at Smyrna. So tonight I want to give you those strengths. Let's pray, and then we'll look at those things tonight. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for the time that we can spend together tonight around your word. I pray that you would help us as we focus on these strong points of the church at Smyrna, that we would have them as well, and that um, as you were pleased with, I believe, this church uh, in Smyrna, I pray that you would be pleased with ours as well. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here's the first thing I want you to see, and, and you probably could pick these out as we go through there or as we went through there, but they served the Lord even though they were poor. And it says that very, very plainly in verse number 9. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue, or but are the synagogue of Satan. So their poverty is mentioned specifically here. And that, that draws attention to, the, to something that so often prevents people from serving God. Well, I don't have the money to do it, or I don't have the time, you know, I don't have the ability to do it because I don't have enough, you know, I don't have enough money. I mean, and there's a lot of people that use that as their excuse. And, you know, there, there's, it, it, it's worth repeating here, but there's no negative spiritual mention about this church, which, again, does not mean that it does not have any problems. But the fact that, that God decided not to mention any of these things really gives us a good indication that, well, that's not a good excuse for not serving God. He mentions very specifically that they were a poor church. And yet, they served God faithfully. Um, beyond that, spiritually speaking, I think poverty gives birth to two 
um, two very helpful attitudes on the part of the Christian. And the first one is this. Poverty brings us to realize what our true riches are. Poverty brings us to realize what our true riches are. Did you? Did, <laughs> things are going crazy. I got it up here. Are you, are you? It's not working? Oh. I didn't either. It was, all, it was going back and forth and doing all kinds of stuff. I only touched it once. Don't blame me for that. I'm kidding. But anyway, when, um, when, when think about the story of Jonah. And we're not going to take the time to go through the whole story. But you remember when Jonah lost everything that a man could lose, uh, including light because he's in the belly of a whale. He saw just exactly uh, the unlimited value in the mercy of God. And that's, that's what poverty does to us a lot of times. It brings us to realize what our true riches are. Money, material things, they cloud our vision. In, fa in fact, and, and, and again, we're not going to take the time to go through all of these different things, but you think about uh, the, the way that the Bible talks about people who were rich. Many times in the Bible, they're not looked at very favorably because they put their money and their riches above even their own souls, Right? He says, labor not to be rich, and, and all of these other things. And the reason, he's not saying that it's wrong to have money. What he's saying is that many times that wealth gets in the way of being able to serve God. And this, you know, not having money like this church did not have, um, kind of helped them to realize just exactly where their priorities were. It was not on money. It was on, it was on God. And, and um, you know, obviously churches need money to operate. Uh, buildings are expensive. Uh, materials and things like that that we need to operate are expensive. But a lot of churches, I think, focus way too much on the money coming in. And they value people based on what they give rather than what they, uh, what they do for Jesus Christ. And, and that's one of these things that obviously this church didn't do. They couldn't do that. There wasn't a lot of people who were, you know, wealthy, who were able to just, you know, uh, pour money into building these big ornate buildings and all of this kind of, they didn't have that in Smyrna. And so one of the things that they did have though, they, they were blessed from, uh, to be free from temptations that money brings because they were broke. They didn't have any of that money, you know? Uh, and so they were able to realize what their true riches were. And of course that's in Jesus Christ. Now turn over to Mark chapter 19, because I think the second thing is this, poverty brings us to the place of dependence on Christ. Josh, I'm just going to let you control this from the back. I pushed this button one time and like three things pop up. So I don't know what's going on with it. We'll have to look at it later. But poverty brings us to the place of dependence on Christ. So it helps us to realize what our true riches really are. It's not in money. It's not in things. It's not in, you know, uh, pleasure and all of that kind of stuff like most of the people in the world try to emphasize our true riches are really found in Jesus Christ. But the second thing is not having money uh, helped them to realize that they needed Jesus Christ. Um, without question, I think the weakest church of the seven churches that are discussed in Revelation, and we'll get to that, uh, is the church at Laodicea. And one of the things uh, about the church at Laodicea is that they were a very wealthy church. Um, Jesus spoke right to the heart of that matter in Mark chapter 19 and verse 24. He said this, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And a lot of people would look at that and say, Oh, that means that there's no way. You know, it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That means it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. 
what, that's not what Jesus' point was. He was saying, if you think about how difficult it is for somebody, uh, in, in other words, it is actually impossible for somebody who is rich and depending on their riches to get into heaven. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, there's other people who, who say that, that there, was a, um, there was a gate that was called the eye of a needle, and the only way that a camel could actually get through that gate is if it got down on its knees and kind of crawled through that gate on its knees and people would get through there and whatever else. And so it's possible for the camel to go through the eye of the needle, but it's a very difficult thing. I don't know exactly what Jesus was talking about. I tend to take the Bible at face value. We know what the eye of a needle is, and Jesus knew that we would know what the eye of a needle is 2,000 years after it was written. And so I believe that he's saying it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And it, it's impossible to get to heaven on your riches. And that's what Jesus, I believe that's the point that Jesus was, was making here. But it was a rich young ruler that came to Jesus and asked him those questions. Yeah. Mark chapter 19, verse 24. Oh, Matthew, I'm sorry. I, I have it written down here, so I'm not, I'm not actually turning to the passages. Matthew chapter 19. Maybe I wrote it down wrong. Sorry. Okay, so is it Matthew? Okay, it's Matthew 19, 24 and Mark 10, 24? Mark 10, 25. So it's, it's also in Luke chapter 18. So the same, same story, the rich young rulers coming to Jesus Christ. Yeah, sorry about that. I, I must have wrote the reference down wrong, but I always put the references, I always put the verses right in there so that way um, I don't have to take the time to turn to it and I can keep going while you're turning there. Uh, or if we don't have time to go to it, then at least I can read the verse to you without, you know, taking the time. So sorry about that. But yes, uh, what he's talking about is that the whole point here is that this rich young ruler who thought he needed nothing uh, came to Jesus Christ. And of course, um, people who, who don't need anything um, tend to not trust Christ for anything either. Not, not for salvation and things like that, but when, it, when, it's, when we're coming to the idea of the church at Smyrna, uh, and, and boy, it just this the thought just hit me. I, I even mentioned the song to, to my wife this week. Uh, if God's way were easy, would I really trust him more? If, if, if God's way were easy, would I really trust him more? Would I follow him more closely, or would I follow him so closely if I knew the way before? You think about that. The reason we need Christ is because we realize that we don't have anything. And the, the less you have, the more your dependence is on God. The more your faith is in Him. The more your faith has to be strong because you don't have the things that are just, you know, given to you or whatever else. And, and that's what this church realized. Uh, you know, churches that have millions of dollars coming in or, or a healthy amount of money stocked away in some fund somewhere should count that as a blessing. It is a blessing to be able to have those kind of things. But if you don't have either of those things, then there's not a need to count that as a curse either. Because that means, uh, you know, that poverty in a church can be a wonderful blessing. It, it, it reminds us where our dependence lies, and that is on God. Now, back in Revelation chapter 2, um, I'll take that a step further and say this. Those who invest treasures in heaven are the ones that possess the true riches anyway. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I think that what a, what a tremendous statement that he makes right there. You don't have money, but you're a very rich church. You see what he said there? 
I mean, he said a lot in those four little words in parentheses. I know your poverty, but you're rich. And you know why? Because they were laying up treasures in heaven. It's exactly what he says in, in uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. During a, a time of, of economic hardship, a, a Christian businessman in uh, had been very prosperous, and he gave away just large amounts of money during the time when his business was doing really well. And now, of course, they were in the middle of this financial hardship, and, and uh, he lost most of everything that he had in the economic collapse. And somebody came up to him and asked him, aren't you sad now? Aren't you sorry now that you gave all of that money away? I mean, think about what you could be doing with that money if you hadn't given all that money away. And his answer was this. He said, I'm not sorry at all. That's all that I really have. And that's true. The more you give to God, the more you're laying up those treasures in heaven. That's really what matters anyway. That's what your real possessions are. That's what he says in, in Matthew chapter 6. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. Thieves can't break through and steal that stuff in heaven, right? I mean, think about all these wealthy, wealthy people that live in these fancy mansions out in Beverly Hills and Los Angeles and all of these places, you know? They got to put these gigantic gates around their houses. They got to have guards there 24 hours a day because they're afraid that people are going to be breaking into their house and trying to steal. And even with all of this stuff, a lot of times their houses still get broken into and they still get ripped off of millions of dollars, you know? And then on top of that, it's not just people that are trying to break in and steal. It's people that are breaking into their bank accounts and stealing their identities and, and you know, millions of dollars that way. And and, um, boy, I was listening to a, um, there's a podcast, and I forget exactly what it's called, but it's, it's um, um, Con Artist. I think that's the name of the podcast, Con Artist. But anyway, the first couple episodes, and they, they do like, the first episode is, is basically all about the con, and the second episode is how they get caught and, you know, the punishment and all that stuff. And, and uh, so I listened to uh, two episodes on Bernie Madoff, and I'm sure you remember hearing about that. Bernie made off, made off with billions and billions and billions of people's money. And, and all these people who really thought they were just completely wealthy were wealthy on paper, and that was it. You know, he was, he was just taking billions of dollars from these people. And when they finally realized what had actually happened, I mean, he, I mean, these people were left just in absolute, you know, with nothing, with nothing, because they were rich on paper, and that was it. And, and all the stuff that he was doing, I mean, they were forging documents and, you know, making it look like they were making all these paydays. And, and literally all they were doing was writing these computer programs that were showing profits, you know, to keep these people happy. And, well, we need a little bit more money from you because it was a Ponzi scheme type thing. And, you know, anyway, I'm not going to get into all of that, but, but that's exactly what happens. When you're rich, when you've got so much money you don't know what to do with it, you've got to worry about thieves breaking through and stealing. You've got to worry about moth and rust corrupting and all of those things, you know. We lay up treasures in heaven, we're not worried about that stuff. We don't have to worry about those things. What we give to the Lord goes on before us, and that's all that we really have. So they served the Lord even though they were poor. But the second thing I see is this. They stayed right through persecution. Um, verse number nine, and, and along with poverty, tribulation is specifically mentioned. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they're Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now, this persecution took verbal form, I guess, from the, uh, from the Jews. And he says that in the rest of that verse, uh, who had denied that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. 
Now, there are some commentators, and one in particular that I respect greatly and, and really um, um, uh, rely on his commentary quite a bit. He's dead now, but um, his great commentary, but, but he considered this to be a weakness of Smyrna. He said that they were allowing these Jews to do these kind of things in the church, and I don't think that's what that is at all. I don't see that at, at all in this passage. What Jesus Christ is saying here is not, you're doing this and you shouldn't be doing it. What he's saying is, I see your works and I see the tribulation and I see how you're getting persecuted by these Jews who are coming in and saying they are Jews. They're not, but they're of the synagogue of Satan. These, these Jews, these Christ rejectors may have been Jews ethnically, but they weren't Jews. Uh, they weren't, they, any Jew who turns his back on Jesus Christ is, is, is in some sense considered not a Jew by God. In fact, turn over to Romans chapter 2. We'll just take a second and look at this to, to try to explain that a little bit further, I think. Um, but Romans chapter 2 and verse 28, it says this, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. Now, Romans chapter 2 through 6, really, uh, is Paul, 4 through 6 especially, but, but you, could, you could even say that Romans chapter 2 would be included in that. Paul is taking the time to, to really explain to them what it means to be a Christian. And so much of that was, it's not what you look like on the outside, it's who you are on the inside. And he's saying that up to them. You're not a Jew if, just because you look like a Jew on the outside. You're a Jew because of who you are on the inside. Uh, turn a couple pages over to Romans chapter 9 and verse number 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. You see what his point is here? Just because you came from Israel doesn't mean that you are a Jew. And that's what he's talking about in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. I know the blasphemy of them which say they're Jews and are not, but are, are the synagogue of Satan. Uh, they, they, for all practical purposes, and looking at it on the outside, were Jews. But he's saying they're, they're not Jews if they're not living like them. Uh, so that verbal persecution that he's talking about in, in verse number 9, go back to Revelation chapter 2 if you're not there already. He's talking about this verbal persecution. I know what they're putting you through. I know what they're saying, verse number 9. But then in verse number 10, that verbal persecution from the Jews toward the church in Smyrna later came about in the form of physical persecution, in trial, in prison, in martyrdom. Fear none of those things, he says in verse number 10, which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Now, let me bring three things to light here about the persecution. There are the ways that a fiery trial can be viewed. And we see three different perspectives uh, in this passage when you're going through a trial. First one is the human level of trials. In other words, you're going through the misery of a trial. It's never easy to go through something difficult like that. But God says this in that first part of that verse, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. And we naturally shy away from suffering. Nobody says, here I am, put me in jail, you know, whip me, beat me, do whatever you want to do. I love suffering. Nobody likes to go through those kind of things, right? 
Nobody wants to go through the suffering of losing a loved one, or nobody wants to go through the suffering of whatever trial comes up. Nobody likes to go through those things, and, and we shy away from those things because they're difficult. Uh, but the Lord encourages us to face those things boldly. God tells us not to fear because he's promised us grace that's sufficient for every need. So there's the human aspect, the human level of trials. The second thing is the satanic level of those trials. And I think this is very telling here. God says, behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Think about that. The devil's not walking around on this earth in physical form, binding people up and putting them in chains and putting them in prison, right? Now, we know the devil is on this earth. The Bible says he's walking about as a roaring lion and everything else, but the devil's not walking around physically putting people in prison. He's got soldiers and everybody else that does that kind of stuff, you know, those who are against Christ. But you see who is behind all of that, right? The devil. He says, he says Behold, the devil shall cast some of you in prison. It's very telling that it's the devil that's doing all those things. Now, God allows that, but it's the devil's doing. I get this all the time. You know, when I, when I'm, you know, when I go out and, and uh, meet with somebody as a chaplain because they, they've just been through something horrible and they say, why would God allow this? And I tell them all the same thing. Uh, or, you know, why, n n they don't say it that way. They say, why would God do this to me? Why would God do this to me? And I tell them all the same thing. You know, God allows it. I don't understand it or I would be God. But I can tell you this, it was never God's intention when he created this earth for there to be suffering and there to be trials and there to be hardships and there to be heartaches and all of those things. God never intended it that way. It was man who fell and it's Satan that's actually doing those things and they're blaming God for it. You know, but it's very plain here that God says the devil shall put some of you in prison. Uh, Satan detests the church. And he has since the days of Pentecost. He hates what God's doing through the church. He's going to do everything he can to try to bring the church down. But don't forget about the divine level of trials. You have the human level. We've got to go through that suffering. You have the satanic level. The, de the devil is the one that's behind all of this stuff. God allows it. But then you have the divine level of suffering. God never permits the saints to suffer without a cause. There is a reason behind everything that God allows. You remember that Satan had to get permission from God to put Job through the trials that he went through. God allowed it. Uh, the reason God allows the trial here is simply very, very clearly in verse number 10, that ye may be tried, that ye might be tested. He says, uh, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer, the human level. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried. But I love this. Look what it says in the next phrase there. There's a limit to the suffering. It says, ye shall be tried 10 days. Now, there's some people who say that that refers to the 10 weeks, you know, the 10th week of, of Daniel's 12 weeks of suffering and all that kind of stuff. There's, there's some debate as to what God meant here, but this was written to a specific church. This was not written to the church age. This was written to the church at Smyrna. And he's telling them, you're going to go through trials for 10 days. That didn't mean anything to them other than you're going to suffer these things for 10 days, and then it's going to be over. There's, there's going to be an end to this suffering. Um, so don't think, I don't think that it can mean anything other than the fact that the trial was going to be short-lived. They were going to go through it. It was going to be difficult. But there's an end. There's an end in sight. 
God will never allow us to be in a trial one moment longer than is needed for us to get to the point where he wants us to be. God allows us to go through trials because he's got a purpose and a plan in why we're going through that trial. And he'll never allow us to be in that trial one minute longer than is needed to help us become pure like he wants us to be pure. Here's another thing and we'll be done. Satan's never allowed to win in the end. So what we see here in the end of verse number 10 and even into verse number 11 is that the final triumph at Smyrna. And there's two things about the final triumph. The first one is this. They were to share in Christ's cross. Look what he says there. Be thou faithful unto death. See, ease and prosperity are nowhere promised as a reward for the Christian life. We want that. But, you know, all these televangelists that are running around talking about the prosperity gospel, you serve God and God will bless you with money and God will bless you with this and God will bless you with that. Now, God certainly gives us blessings, but he doesn't promise prosperity. He doesn't promise ease. Those are not gifts as a reward for faith in the Christian life. In fact, the opposite is true. We're warned to, to look out for persecution because it's coming. We're warned to expect that persecution because it's coming. The only way that we can guarantee that we'd be willing to die for Christ tomorrow is if we're willing to live for Christ today. And that's exactly what this church at Smyrna was all about. They were willing to die for Christ because they were willing to live for him in the moment. And God says, uh, Jesus says, be thou faithful unto death. They were going to be a partakers in Christ's cross, but they were to share in Christ's crown. The Lord says this, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. See, the world offers the believer torture, death, uh, persecution in whatever twisted way they can come up with. But Christ rewards with crowns of life that are going to outlast the universe itself. What a great reward. What a great promise. It comes when we're faithful. Now, let me tell you a story, and we'll be done. Uh, Robin Lane Fox wrote a book in 1986 called Pagans and Christians. And he tells the stories about a lot of what was going on in those days. And, of course, you've heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs. There's another book called By Their Blood that it's written about um, uh, a lot more modern Christians that are, that were, that are being persecuted and, ha and have been persecuted. By the way, you know there's more Christians being persecuted and killed today than there ever was in any point in history? You don't hear about them a lot, but in a lot of these other places, in the communist regimes and things like that, there's, there's millions and millions of Christians being martyred um, every single year. But let me just share one of those stories with you. Um, Sitting in the church at Smyrna that day that John wrote this letter uh, in, in the book of Revelation to that church was a 27-year-old young man named Polycarp. probably recognize his name. He's one of the, known as one of the church fathers, but he listened to uh, John's message. And uh, John had actually personally won Polycarp to Christ. And so uh, John was discipling him. John was, was helping him grow as a Christian. And he became his mentor and trained him for the ministry. In fact, just a few years after Revelation chapter 2 was written to that church, Polycarp became the pastor of the church at Smyrna. 
And, of course, uh, he became very influential in his generation. Um, he became part of the generation, the first generation that was alive after Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, the first generation that was uh, the first generation of Christians that had not actually seen Christ. Uh, Polycarp was, was the leader of that generation. And he stood, uh, he stood loyally for the authority and for the authenticity of the Scripture. And that's one of the things that he was known for and he preached. The Bible is the Word of God. And he refused the Bishop of Rome. And of course, by that point now, Catholicism had not completely taken over, but some of the aspects of that were starting to grow. And uh, they were condemning Christians. They were persecuting Christians, not just from the Jews, but on even a, a political side of things. And he refused the Bishop of Rome when that bishop tried to uh, come in and take control of the church at Smyrna. And um, as an old man, by this point, he had served Christ faithfully for decades, um, 27 or so when he got saved, 30 or so when he took over the pastor as the pastor of that church. But just like John warned in Revelation chapter 2, they were going to face persecution, and they did. And they faced heavy persecution. Many of them were killed for the cause of Christ, and he was found guilty of being a Christian and was going to be burned at the stake um, with wood that was actually contributed by the Jews that were mentioned here in verse number nine. And he went willingly. He went untied. They didn't bind his hands and drag him to the stake. He walked there untied. And I'm sure he was thinking of John and, and John's words to his church that were written some 60 years before that. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. At 86 years old, Polycarp, the pastor, the longtime pastor of the church there at Smyrna, a convert and a disciple of the apostle John, was given one last chance to recant before they burned him at the stake. And this is what he said. Eighty and six years have I served him. and He never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my Savior and King? And he walked over to the stake and they lit it and he was burned. His hands weren't tied. They didn't need to. He wasn't going to recant. And if that's what it meant, then that's what he was going to do. And that's what John warned them about. You're going to face persecution. You're going to suffer but I see the suffering that you're going through. I see what you're doing. Be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful unto death. And I'll give thee a crown of life. They were made of stern stuff in Smyrna. They served the Lord even though they were poor. They didn't use that as an excuse. Well, I don't have the money to be able to do that. They didn't use that as an excuse. They served the Lord even though they were poor. They weren't about making excuses why they couldn't serve God, and that's why they were able to stay right even through the persecution. One of the crowns that we can earn, one of the five crowns that we can earn is this crown of life. You know what it comes from? Just being faithful. Just being faithful. We may not be called on to stand at the stake and be burned, but we might. We might. There's a martyr's crown, too, but a crown of life comes to those that are just faithful. 
And that's what this church at Smyrna was all about. Serving God. Serving God through poverty. Serving God through tribulation. May we do the same. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for the examples that we have in Scripture. Thank you for these churches that just stood by the stuff, that just kept going for you, that are such a great example of how we ought to be living our lives as well. And God, I pray that you'd help us to make that determination tonight that we'd live for you as well. We're not going to let poverty, we're not going to let tribulation, we're not going to let other things that come up stop us from being faithful to you. And God, may every person in this room tonight stand before you someday and receive the crown of life for being faithful. May you bless us for, for our work for you. Thank you for what you do for us. I pray that you give us a good rest of the week in Jesus' name. Amen. It's easier to